Welcome to the FIEC podcast, Independence. My name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and we're doing our, our weekly, or fortnightly, I should say, news roundup. And with me is uh, John Stevens, our National Director. Hello, John. Morning, Phil. Great to see you. And Head of National Ministries, Adrian Reynolds. Uh, fresh from a trip to Bristol, which we'll talk about a bit later on. That's right. Although I'm wearing my North Macedonian socks. Uh, in celebration of last night's wonderful event, uh, where the Italians Indeed. were. were yeah. not. With yeah. football logic, doesn't that mean that the North Macedonians would beat England at probably on penalty? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, how it yeah. works. Because Italy Champions beat us in the, Europe, North Macedonia. Absolutely. That's exactly how football logic works. Well, there we are. Very good. Well, welcome to you both. Thank good you. Uh, to see you. Uh, brothers, I-, I want to start by by talking about Ukraine. We're going to try and cover off a few topics and, and perhaps zip through them a bit more quickly this week. But um, we're a month into this war now. Um, one thing I've really been struck by this week is how President Zelensky has conducted himself. He seems to be visiting different countries electronically, joining in kind of events at uh, with, with, with different politicians on Zoom, and he's able to win the room and win people to his position. I think he, he's looking like a, a real statesman and he's doing an amazing job. I think that's completely right. And people have been somewhat surprised because, I mean, President Zelensky, in a sense, was almost seen as being a joke president. Mm. He'd, he'd got the job having been a comedian, having been in a television program in which he was pretending to be the president <laughs> and accidentally became the president. <laughs> Here he finds himself in this role. And I think he has conducted himself remarkably mm. in, in terms of galvanizing his people and speaking to the world, gaining a huge amount of support mm. for um, the Ukrainian forces. And technology has enabled him to do that. And we shouldn't forget that he's also been under immense pressure with uh, the Russians seeking to assassinate him, yeah. sending him in troops and their, their mercenaries. Uh, and I think what he has done is galvanised the conscience of the world um, to recognise the way that the Russians um, have I- invaded Ukraine, the appalling way that they're treating the people, the way that cities are being sort of shelled and, and destroyed. And in the way that many great leaders in the past, I mean, Churchill would be the obvious example of a man whose rhetoric galvanised a nation at a moment of great peril. Zelensky has been able to do that, and he's proved himself self to be a, a great leader who has, has galvanised his uh, uh, people. He's a good communicator, isn't he? Mm. How much of good leadership do you think is good communication? The two are very closely linked together, aren't they? And I guess his, his communication skills may come from his background in performing arts, but he is a good communicator. And I think you've got to have both of those. If you don't have a strategy, communication won't carry you through. But um, in something like a, a war in the Ukraine, it's essential to galvanise the nation. I think President Putin thought that Ukraine would fall apart, yeah. that there wouldn't be the level of patriotism and support, there wouldn't be the t- determination to defend. So one of the things that's so struck me has been the way that Ukrainians have been willing to fight for their country. Mm. Well, I struck last night watching on BBC a, a kind of a, a sort of an interview with some guys on the front line who'd gone into the army and were now day by day, you know, manning foxholes, keeping the Russians at bay, beginning to push them back. Nobody would have guessed a month ago that Ukraine would have been able to resist as strongly as it has done. And as much as anything, that's been because of the determination of the people, their willingness to fight for their country, the patriotism they've shown. And Zelensky has inspired that. He's uh, been able to galvanise the army and the people uh, in this conflict. Yeah, but I was going to say, it's not just the army, though, is it? These are conscripts who basically were, were ordinary Joes, if I can put it like that, literally five weeks ago. And then now they're at the front line of a, of a battle. 
Um, absolutely. And people have been willing to take up arms, very little training. Um, but I mean, behind that, there's also a, a significantly well-trained army that's able to organise the strategy. So at least they're integrating into yeah. um, trained forces. But yeah, very ordinary people, kind of teachers, um, uh, sort of, uh, we've seen people from churches who've mm. gone on into the army. So I mean, Adrian, I think you were speaking to someone who'd gone into the army from a seminary in Kiev. Yes. I mean, it's it's almost difficult to imagine, isn't it? Impossible to imagine what one would do in that circumstance. I mean, there's, there's an interesting just aside there, which is I think in the past, um, often in wars and conflicts where Christians have been conscripted, they've often served as non-competence, haven't they? Mm-hmm. You think especially the First World War, Second World War to a certain extent, um, and not a lot of non-conformists served as non-competence. What, what do you guys think about, um, you know, what's the Christian's role then? Country's invaded, um, you're called up. Should you be willing to fight? God, that's a good question, isn't it? Well, I think Christians generally in history have been willing to fight, at least in the defence of their own country against um, unlawful uh, invasion and all of the ways that people suffer as a result of that. Um, I think um, uh, there has been a long tradition of people um, sort of, uh, in a sense, being unwilling to serve. But I wonder if that's actually been bound up with kind of concepts of Western imperial wars that people didn't want to get involved in, particularly in the First World War and then at the beginning of the Second World War. You don't want to be be the aggressor. Mm. So there's a difference between what you might call a just war of defending yourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, when I was growing up, I went to a United Reformed Church as a kid. The minister had been um, a, a, a sort of somebody who was a conscientious objector in the Second World War. So that had been his position. And it wasn't just a nonconformist thing. We have to remember John Stott himself was a conscientious objector in mm. the Second World War and instead kind of stayed in Cambridge and studied and prepared, prepared for ministry. Um, I think, though, that in the Second World War, there was actually perhaps more of a reaction afterwards when people discovered the reality of how Nazi Germany had kind of behaved and when when the Holocaust and the atrocities mm. became available. In, in the First World War, I think there was a general feeling that this had been an imperialist adventure at yeah. an immense cost. Uh, after the Second World War, maybe there was a re-evaluation and people thought, no, this was a war that needed to be fought because of the sheer wickedness of of the enemy. So I think for many Christians, it might depend on the justice of the cause yeah. that they're being asked to serve. Yeah. And I think the other interesting narrative thing in terms of people serving in the Ukraine is the number of people who are interviewed in press or uh, on TV, whatever it may be, who say, you know, we're willing to pay the cost. That there's, a, there's an acknowledgement and a recognition that actually to serve is, is quite potentially going to be costly. Yeah. Um, possibly even laying down their lives. And I know Putin has, um, uh, you know, kind of um, taken the Bible quote, hasn't he, and, and used it really quite awfully. But but actually this this concept of being willing actually to, to suffer and sacrifice in service has, has been a key motif in people in Ukraine taking up arms. And it's obviously a very strong biblical theme, isn't it? And, and, and I wonder actually if it's a reminder to us that following Christ and fighting in the spiritual battle we're in is costly. Mm. We need to call people to to, to take up their cross daily. And I don't think as Western evangelicals, we've been great at that. We, mm. we tell everyone all the benefits of being a Christian without saying there is a cost to mm, following Christ. Mm, mm. And there is a cost to, to, you know, to following in the way of the man who was crucified. It follows on from my hobby horse, which I mentioned uh, when I was preaching on Sunday, which is- Get I, it in we, again, we, Well, we've, Phil, we've, we've, we again. functionally live, I think, as Christians sometimes as if the resurrection isn't really a reality for us as believers. So actually we live like this life is all that there is. Uh, and therefore we don't have a, a realism about the life that's to come. So therefore that affects the way that we live now. So we're not prepared to take risks because we don't believe the truth of the resurrection. And when we do believe the truth of the resurrection, we're actually inherently more risk-taking for the Lord in this life because we recognise this life is not all there is. 
Uh, one of the things that um, you, has come out of the, the kind of Ukraine story this week is the government has been, been quick to say prices are rising because of the war in Ukraine. I don't think that's quite true. What, what do we make of the spring statement from the Chancellor? Well, there's this a, there's a large element of truth in it. There's some um, truth in it, but it's not the only thing because so prices were rising before Russia invaded Ukraine. They were, although partly that was um, in response to sort of the, the increased tension that there was in the world. So we get a lot of our oil still from Russia. Mm. Um, Western Europe does. We get a lot of our wheat and barley from uh, from Russia and Ukraine. I mean, they are, those sort of places are the breadbasket, really, of Europe in many ways. And so there is pressure on prices, I mm. think. Um, so there, there are other factors involved, but they are significant factors. Uh, whether they're the in, it's the entirety of the story, I think, is debatable. Mm. But mm. they are large factors. So there was some um, rhetoric after the, the Chancellor's statement. I think it was Ken Clark that said he summed up the um, he summed up the Chancellor's spring statement like this. He said the Chancellor's basically saying, uh, "I'll buy you a pint if you give me the money and keep the change," which I thought was a little bit harsh, but it did make for a nice uh, kind of sound bite. Um, has he gone far enough? John, in terms of helping people with the cost of living crisis? Well, I think the reality is that, I mean, it, it's a complex situation at the moment. Um, we, we have known that kind of government has had to raise more revenue. The costs of the pandemic and all that's been done in that time have to be met at one level. We have pressure in society, an aging population with increasing health needs. So some of the tax rises that were kind of built into this spring statement had been ad- uh, announced in advance and were part of a, a desire to sort of correct a long-term shortfall of, of funding. So as a nation, we've had this fundamental problem of wanting to live beyond our means for a long period of time. Government always wants to do a lot mm. and people don't want to pay taxes for it. And that that's a fundamental dilemma. And that's all being compounded by rising prices, which are partly a result of the recovery coming out of COVID around the world, yeah. but also exacerbated by what's happening in Ukraine. So there's no doubt that these factors, which aren't totally in government's control, uh, will significantly affect individuals' lives. Mm. And I think most people sort of see government as having done relatively little to help people, particularly on lower incomes, to be able to cope with what will be very significant increases in, for example, energy costs. Mm. Um, And and they've continued to add tax rises on on top of them. So I think there has been pretty significant criticism of the level of help given. And the reality is everybody is going to have a squeeze on their income as a result of what is happening. But there will be some people who are affected by that because it will have real impact on their ability to provide for themselves. I suspect, for example, that churches will find that food banks will become even more necessary to care care for people who are not able to make um, ends meet. And it does seem slightly ironic that government was able to find very large amounts of money to smooth the problems of the kind of COVID period and hasn't found, in a sense, an ability to be able to, what, what is probably smoothing a, a short or medium-term issue here of hugely rising prices because of those other factors in the world economy. And then the Chancellor, you kind of begin to announce tax cuts in the future. Mm. Um, uh, so you wonder whether there's some measure of politics being played here of pain now and the prospect of cutting taxes before what will inevitably be the next mm. election. Mm. Let, let's avoid politics. Yeah, I think, but, 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 but I but, think it's an interesting question. John mentioned food banks there. Yep. What else can churches do? Well, I, th- I think the key thing for church leaders is to think about people in the church as individuals. Mm. I've said this before, and I think it's really important. Um, everybody's story will be slightly different. So people will be under pressure on prices. Everyone's going to struggle um, because the, the the electricity and gas prices, for example, are going up. Mm. But um, each each family unit, if you like, their ability to cope with that will be very different. Yeah. And there is now, I mean, if inflation is going to hit 8%, 
there is going to be a world of difference from someone, say, who works in the private sector and is getting an 8% pay rise in the summer from someone, for example, who works in a hospital where pay rise is limited to 1.5% or 2%, mm -hmm. where they're taking real-term cuts on already what's a, a low income. So I, I think um, we've got to be really careful as church leaders just to fight against generalising and thinking that everyone is in the same boat. Um, there the, the may be people in church who can give more. You know, they've got a generous em employer, perhaps their family circumstances change, they're able to actually give more. And so just saying that everybody's going to be straightened isn't going to be true. But also looking at people who are managing and getting by and saying, well, everybody should be able to manage and get by, that's also a nonsense. Yeah. So it, it's absolutely critical, actually, as with all pastoral issues, that we deal with individuals and we don't just kind of generalise across the spectrum. Do you think church giving will drop? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Is there an inevitability to that? Do, do, do church I, I think need church, to think about that? I think church giving always lags anyway. Mm. So um, I'm just thinking about my own giving. You know, every time I get a pay rise, do I review my standing orders to the church? Probably not enough. Mm. Not or regularly in, or enough. Immediately. Or immediately. Mm. So I think there's always a lag anyway. So I think that there's that inbuilt lag that's going to affect people. So, you know, will people, Will people be thinking inflation's got up 10% or whatever it is, 8%, I should be giving my, you know, increasing my giving to the church 8%. I, I think probably not. So there is going to be that hit. Um, but I think inevitably there will be people who feel that they can't give quite as much. Mm. And, and, and I think in those circumstances, we need to have a New Testament theology of giving, not a mosaic law theology of giving. Mm. So I, I think the rigidity of saying you must give 10% and that's your measure, that's not, I don't think, the New Testament measure the New Testament measure in 2 Corinthians 8 9 is generosity yeah. out of affordability um, or just perhaps a little bit more if you take the lesson of the Macedonians. So so I think actually there's, there's, we need to show grace towards those who say, well, I can't I can't afford 10% now mm, mm. Um, if that was perhaps their, their guide before. Mm. I think generally we should be encouraged that actually often giving of Christians holds up remarkably well yeah. despite the circumstances. Yeah. Which it did in COVID, uh, as we said COVID, a couple of weeks ago. Which I think yeah, is yeah. because for Christians, they do want to give to investing in the work of the kingdom. Um, there are other areas of their expenditure that they might cut back. Mm. So um, as these kind of um, price rises kick in and, and people's kind of standard of living drops, um, it becomes a choice, doesn't it? Do you cut your giving or or do you cut other things that you do that are discretionary expenditure that you might enjoy doing? And I think it is remarkable that Christians very often keep up their giving yeah. because they are really committed to Christ and the cause yeah. of the kingdom yeah. and they're willing to give in that way. And I think um, I would expect that to be the case across churches. Mm. Whilst there will be those for whom giving to the church is no longer um, uh, kind of their top priority when they've got to provide for their own families. And actually, interestingly, in the New Testament, providing for your own family is a first call mm. so that you don't have to be dependent on the church. So I think it's entirely mm. right that if you're in a position where you can't afford food or basics or things like that because costs of living have gone up, actually, uh, you, in a sense, put that first rather mm. than you're giving to the church. Yeah. But for the vast majority of people, they they won't be in that situation. And, and I think also as leaders, we need to set an example. Mm. That's really important. Now, giving is one of those less visible things that we can set an example in. But giving isn't just about the money you transfer. It's about the way you give to the, yourself and pour yourself into the life of the church. We do need to set an example. We need, and we need to be just wary. I, one of the things that amused me this week was seeing um, Rishi Sunak filling up a car at Sainsbury's. I don't know if you saw the photo. It was a Kia Rio. It was a Kia Rio. It's not his. <laughs> it belonged to one of the Sainsbury's supermarket workers. And he put 20 pounds and one pence of petrolings. because he couldn't quite stop in time. It's because it's too expensive. And um, he then went to the, he went to the checkout and wasn't, he, he didn't appear to know how 
how to pay for it. Yeah. So yeah. he was paying for petrol in someone else's car just for the photo opportunity. And it just it's just a reminder, actually, that it, it's possible to, to think you're setting an example for actually to be completely vacuous and empty. So we need to pray for good hearts, I think, as leaders, mm, mm. that we will have a spirit of generosity ourselves, which is not forced or, um, in, you know, we're trying to impose it on others, but actually is a, is a genuine generosity that springs from changed hearts. I think another element to that is that we need to also find ways as we lead our churches of making it very easy for people to make their needs known so yeah. that the church can meet them. Because one of the challenges is people might have need, but they're embarrassed to ask. Mm. Um, uh, they, they, so you've got to have clear ways in which people can kind of come to the church and actually talk about their real needs in a way that honours them. Uh, and you see actually a huge amount of energy in the New Testament going into that, whether it be the way that the early church fed widows within the church or in, in kind of 1 Timothy, the kind of the way the church supported widows who had nobody else to support them. There, was, there, was, there were processes that made it very possible mm. to kind of identify who had need and, and to meet that need and to recognise that that's part of what the church community needs to be, fulfilling that vision that there should be no need amongst those who are God's people. Thank you. Lots to think about there. We, we said we didn't want to get into politics, but there is a political decision that's taken place this week, which probably has implications for Christians, particularly in Wales, as it already has in Scotland. Wales have brought in a, a smacking ban this week. Uh, so children, it's, it's now illegal in Wales to smack uh, your child. And um, First of all, John, just give us an overview of, of what we think the Bible says uh, okay. about that and, and how this law impacts that. How long have that. you got? <laughs> Well, yeah, the smacking ban has been introduced. Wales has become one of what are something like something like 68 countries around the world now that has banned um, any kind of physical chastisement of children. Scotland already had that um, uh, sort of law introduced a, a few years ago. So it's part of a more kind of global trend to mm. um, sort of prevent parents from disciplining their children in, in physical ways. I think when we look at the Bible, the Bible certainly recognises physical discipline, both of children and adults, yep. actually. Yep. Um, uh, in the Old Testament, most of the references that get quoted about physical discipline are actually about the physical discipline of adults um, and very often are speaking about something far beyond smacking. They're talking about kind of the, the flogging of adults, the use of the rod. You read that in the book of kind of Proverbs. We read of Paul in his ministry. He's beaten with rods 39 times. Mm. Um, uh, so sort of, I think he receives that sort of five times. So physical discipline was part and parcel of the kind of biblical worldview and the culture at that stage, not just of children, but also of uh, kind of adults. The Bible, of course, teaches that parents have a responsibility to discipline their children, that discipline Discipline is necessary in order to restrain evil and train us to be sort of righteous and wise. So discipline, um, uh, which inevitably is, is always going to be to some extent painful, whatever form that discipline takes, um, is an essential part of ra raising your children. Um, I think the, uh, the challenge for Christians is whether a particular form of discipline is required by the Bible. Mm. In other words, that you have to discipline in a particular way. So I'd be in favour of uh, kind of limiting the state's restriction on its involvement involvement in telling parents what they can and can't do in their parenting. Although we all accept there are some limits to that. So it was already the case that many forms of physical disciplining that had been acceptable even only 30 or 40 years ago would clearly now lead to a uh, kind of criminal conviction. So government does limit what we can do as, as parents. It requires us to have our children to be educated. It, uh, we all want the state to step in if children are being actually abused in, mm. in the home. So an absolute principle that says the state shouldn't be concerned with how you bring up your children is not one that in practice people, people share. But where you've got something like this that is not required the challenge for Christians then becomes if this is something we want to choose to do, but the state says we shouldn't, do we have a right to disobey what 
the the, the law says. So that's, that's where it cashes out, isn't it, for us? Yeah. So 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 what would what would you recommend? For Christians to in Wales, particularly at this moment, yeah. where they're getting used to this new law, what what what's the recommendation? Would you suggest? Well, obviously, individual Christians have got to make their choice for themselves, knowing what the consequences might be. So, in Wales, if children parents choose to smack their children, and that's reported, they risk a criminal conviction. That mm. would have huge implications for their ability, for example, to work with children, work in certain sectors. Um, at its most extreme, governments could choose to intervene and take children into care if they felt that they were being mistreated. So I think if you had a, a parent who was persistently smacking their child and refused to obey the law, in the end, the state could take that action. So it's, it's worth saying the decisions you make have to be made in the light of that. It mm. seems for me the crucial question is, is this an area where following Christ requires us to disobey what the state says? And personally, I'm not convinced that that's what the Bible teaches. I'm not convinced that the Bible says you've got to physically discipline your children that if you fail to do so, you are disobeying Christ. And in lots of areas of life, the state imposes on us restrictions where we can't exercise our preferences in the way that we would want to do. So for me, this is not a question of biblical obedience. This is a question of a preference that parents might want to choose to take, but the state, by its democratic decision, has taken that away. And I think that in those circumstances, actually as Christians, we want to be those who obey what the, gov- the government says. We've got to have pretty strong reasons for saying that we should disobey um, the law. And we've got to think about what the witness of that would be to the wider community. Um, at, at one level, this is not a hill I want to die on as a Christian. It's not the thing I want to be known to be uh, sort of standing for. Again, because I don't think Biblically, it is something that is required of parents in their disciplining of children. John, if only you'd written um, one of your famously brief and concise blog posts on this subject. <laughs> Maybe um, even a decade ago, we, almost. We, we could put a link to it on the bottom of the podcast. Oh, oh there is one. Oh, there is one. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I did write on that because the issue was raised. And actually, it was, it was part of a discussion with John Piper and others about what they were doing. Interestingly, yeah. it, nine, nine years ago when I wrote that, John Piper was saying, you know, actually, you'd have to disobey the state and smack your children. The Americans often have a much stronger view of smacking as essential to child rearing. Um, interestingly, in a subsequent conference, he basically said when he was asked the question, if you'd smack your children, um, if the state would intervene and take them into care, he said, of course I wouldn't. You know, At one level, I recognise that those in that situation are facing a much more difficult question. And at that point, you're saying you don't think this is biblically required. It's, mm. a, it's a choice. Yeah. Read the um, post. Read the post, mm, mm. I would so say. It's a, yeah. good, it's a good blog post and well yeah. worth engaging in. And we'll put a little link at the bottom of the podcast uh, on it. And um, I wonder if I can ask you, uh, gentlemen, where we are at in the cultural moment when it comes to matters relating to um, the transgender community. Um, so there's been a lot uh, in the press this week about uh, Leah Thomas, a transgender woman who's won um, uh, a college swimming uh, tournament in the States. L- lots been been said yeah. about that. Without getting and, into and the- confusion about, with politicians not really wanting to nail down exactly yeah, what they believe what, about, what, what about is a woman, biology. Yeah. I, I don't really want to get into that necessarily, but but I do want to ask the question, where are we at in the cultural moment? Because if you read a lot of the social media, a lot of the press, transgender is a, a done deal. Is that necessarily the case? Well, I think we, we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? I, I think what we're beginning to discover is that um, our, our tendency as Christians is to look at the world in very black and white terms, either with us or against us. And if they're against us, they must all agree with this or must all agree with that. And I think we're beginning to see 
that actually um, the liberal secular world is more fragmented, isn't it, John, that, than actually mm. sometimes we perceive it to be? I think that's right. And you're beginning to see a fracturing in, in some of the campaigning groups. So, for example, the idea that kind of the LBGTQI group is all one lobby that holds the same view and is simply pushing a, a kind of a progressive agenda that is universally shared, that's obviously not the case. And I think we've seen, for example, sort of feminists arguing against transgender ideology, um, now we're beginning to see... Well, some famously, of- Matthew Paris, who was yeah. there at the beginning of the setting up of Stonewall um, Times, a uh, journalist, um, a homosexual campaigner, has, was withdrawn from Stonewall and actually disagreeing mm. with some mm. of their, their policies now. I mean, as I see it, it's rather like this. It seems to me that we've sort of since the 1960s, the liberal progressive agenda has been advancing. In many ways, it's won culturally. Um, it is now the, the, the dominant sort of force. They are the masters now. Virtually every political party would support the broad liberal progressive um, sort of agenda. And now they're beginning to struggle with the reality of governing, where you suddenly discover that having been a campaigning organisation where you're all united in this desire to overthrow the established order, you've suddenly got to decide what are you going to put in its yeah, place? What is the new order? And we, we've yeah. kind of moved from what you might call deconstruction, which is dead easy, because you just simply kind of point out the flaws of what's already there to the process of reconstruction. And it seems to me it's not unlike actually the situation in the English Civil War, where after the parliamentarians won... I'm glad we've got the English Civil yeah, yeah. War in yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that's what we were aiming yeah. for at the beginning after, of the pod. After the parliamentarians yeah, yeah. won and beheaded the king, what you then ended up with was actually they had to govern. And um, people began to split apart into smaller groups. Infighting took over. It was incredibly difficult to establish any kind of consensus. And I think we just see perhaps the beginnings of that with the liberal progressive uh, uh, kind of a, a, a agenda. I mean, we've seen it in sports. Seb Coe this week has highlighted the fact that kind of um, if you don't take account of biology in the end, women's sport is going to be uh, 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 undermined. So there's a growing awareness of some of the implications. We shouldn't, though, in the midst of this cultural battle, I think, forget the individuals mm. and the pastoral pain that is felt. So it's easy for us to think about uh, sort of transgender as, as, as just sort of some theoretical position, philosophical idea ideology that we're arguing about. Whereas it's very clear that there are some individuals who um, feel very deeply, are very hurt, um, find it very hard to cope with their gender identity. Mm. And we need to kind of have a, a compassion for that at the same the same time. Mm. Um, there was also this week, I mean, growing concern about the numbers of people presenting as suffering from gender identity issues. So I think there's been a huge number um, of uh, sort of people who have uh, kind of gone to the Tavistock Clinic and are seeking help. Yeah, which has just had a terrible review, the Tavistock Clinic, yeah. hasn't it? So it's, in, it's interesting, this tension that you've got a growing number of people coming, and yet actually, even from within establishment circles, the Tavistock Clinic itself being given really quite a poor mm, review mm, of, mm, of the mm. standards of care they're providing. But I think that's sort of more and more people struggling with gender identity, yeah. to what extent is that caused by the ideology and what's online and what, what people are saying? And so there's, there's also concern being raised about how people are being influenced into sort of transgender mm. genderism. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think particularly young girls, there seems to be a real kind of challenge of teenage girls who are sort of questioning their, their gender identity. So yeah. those are the kinds of issues that society is now wrestling with. And it, it, in that sense, it's not a done deal. Mm. Um, Mm. Interesting. Um, wisdom for church leaders then, uh, swimming in those ideological waters. I mean, this is what the world is being, uh, the world is feeding this to the people who are in your your, your pews, as it were, Sunday yeah. by Sunday. Well, actually, it still begins, doesn't it, with the same, to think of individuals. Mm. So actually, especially if you've got individuals in your church, parents perhaps of, of children who are struggling with things, um, you want to be approaching it in, in the way that Christ would, with compassion, mm. with care, with mm. tenderness, carefulness, 
and, and great pastoral wisdom. So it, it still actually comes back to the same essential, uh, at a pastoral level, the same essential pastoral rule, which is you don't generalise, you deal with people as individuals mm. and as part of God's good created order. And, and that's your, I think that always has to be your starting point. I think something we need to take into account there is that the church can inadvertently contribute to the problem by the way that it speaks of gender identities. So I think uh, this separation between biological sex and gender reminds us that sometimes we can have all sorts of conceptions of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be feminine, what it means to be masculine, that we assume are somehow bound up with our biology but mm. aren't. And actually over tight understandings of what it means to be a man or a woman actually cause people to have um, uncertainty about their gender identity when they don't fit with that stereotype. Yeah. And I think in the past, sometimes the church has spoken of men and women, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be masculine and feminine, therefore the roles that ought to flow from that, which are actually shaped much more by culture rather than actually by anything that the Bible teaches. Mm. There's actually a spectrum of femininity and masculinity reflected uh, across the Bible. And I think as we teach into this situation, we need to have a real awareness of that rather than offering a simplistic kind of um, difference between genders that will actually only exacerbate the problems. Because people in our pews will be struggling with issues mm, of, our, mm. of their identity. And um, we've got to have a sensitivity not to, conf not to say that they've got to conform to some cultural stereotype. Because actually, if that's the case, we will perhaps simply cause them to question whether they really are um, male or female. We've got to bring this into land, gentlemen. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Adrian, I wonder if I can just ask you about what you were doing last night. Where were yes. you this time? Where were you last um, night? Apart from staying in a Premier Inn somewhere. Well, yes. Um, I was at a Passion for Life event. Mm. Um, first one that I've been at in Bristol, mm. which is put on by a church in Bristol on the subject of sleep. Really, really good event, actually. Interesting event. Um, they, they put it on because they have a, a woman in their church who is a sleep practitioner, a sleep consultant, works part-time for the NHS, part-time privately, just helping actually parents with young children when the children can't sleep. And so that they looked at, um, as they were planning for Passion for Life, they looked at the resources they had in the church. They looked at the expertise they had in the church. They said, well, we've got this woman. Let's make use of her. Mm. And so they put on an event um, about sleep. She did a presentation about sleep, answers lots of questions that people had. And then I did a 15-minute talk at the end about the Bible's view of sleep. What does God think about sleep? Based on the book I wrote 10 years ago. And I, I thought it was a really good event. Um, maybe 45, 50 people there. Uh, lots of guests have been brought along because actually it's a good hook mm. um, it, it's a good grab you know people are thinking I, oh, I do struggle with sleep I want to hear a little bit more about that so it was a kind of entry level event at the beginning of their passion for life process but a really encouraging time and I just thought the interesting point is they looked at who they had in their church and they said let's use what the Lord has given us yeah and 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 use that as as a way in maybe as part of our evangelism, which I think is a great principle, mm. and perhaps something we don't do enough. So we could look at who we've got in our own congregations and say, how could we use that? So, for example, yeah. you've got lots of teachers in your church. Yeah. Well, lots of parents are thinking about kids' education. How do they make choices? So you know, you could do a really interesting evening about education, talk mm. about maybe the Bible's view of children mm. as a little sort of evangelistic talk at the end. And again, I think that would be an easy invite and, and I think would scratch where people are itching. Mm. So it sounds very ordinary, perhaps, if you're in a congregation with folk who are doing those kind of jobs, but actually there's ways you can use that to, to share yeah, the good right. news of the gospel. That's right. Fantastic. Adrian, I'm glad it was a good time. I uh, pray yeah. that many people uh, heard the gospel uh, and we pray they'd ask further questions. Brothers, uh, thank you for joining us. It's been the FIEC podcast, Independence, uh, and we'll see you next time. You can subscribe through the usual channels. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. <laughs>